Britain's A&Es are taking more than 12 hours to treat thousands of patients. Barely anyone can afford their energy bills, and now we're running out of clean water. After 12 years of Tory rule, is there a single thing in this country that works? That's the question we'll be asking on tonight's Tisky Sour, and to do so, I'll be joined by, I am joined by, Navaramita co-founder Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very well, Michael. There is no shortage of good takes coming your way here on Tisky Sour. The Environment Agency has declared drought across large areas of England. Prolonged dry conditions have meant many areas have received barely any rainfall all summer. Drought is the second of four official dry weather emergency stages, and eight of the Environment Agency's 14 areas are now in it, with a further two expected to be announced later this month. They stretch from Yorkshire to Kent and from Lincolnshire to Cornwall. The National Drought Group is a body of experts tasked with managing drought conditions, and they have been told that the dry weather is now threatening England's food security. The Guardian reports, Half of the potato crop is expected to fail as it cannot be irrigated, and even crops that are usually drought tolerant, such as maize, have been failing. The National Drought Group was told irrigation options are diminishing, with reservoirs being emptied fast, and losses of between 10% and 50% are expected for crops including carrots, onions, sugar beet, apples and hops. Milk production is also down nationally due to a lack of food for cows and wildfires are putting large areas of farmland at risk. Farmers are deciding whether to drill crops for next year and there are concerns that many will decide not to with dire consequences for the 2023 harvest. In previous years of drought, dry summers were often offset by a wet autumn But the group was also told that isn't likely to happen now. Of course, what we're seeing here is just more evidence of climate breakdown and the failure of our political class to contend with it. But you might think this stark evidence would finally spur them into urgent action on decarbonisation. But no, this is what our likely next Prime Minister had to say about a green transition at a recent Tory leadership hustings. And I think one of the most depressing sights when you're driving through England is seeing fields that should be full of crops or livestock full of solar panels. I'll tell you what's depressing, Liz Truss. Seeing fields that should be full of crops or livestock full of fire. This is a field in Thornton, Suffolk, where 15 acres of crops were quickly destroyed in a wildfire. Over the weekend, most of South England and East Anglia will be classed as at exceptional risk of wildfires. The other aspect of the drought which should be uncomfortable for the Tories is what it says about our privatised water system. That's because while water bosses ask us to cool down with damp towels instead of having showers, yes, that really did happen, three billion litres of water are lost every single day due to leaky pipes. We also lack enough reservoirs to get us through these non-rainy days because not a single one has been built since water was privatised in 1989. And this lack of investment is all despite money pouring into the privatised water firms. In the past 15 years, household water bills have increased by 40%, and the water companies have taken on £56 billion in debt. But this revenue stream has translated into only £123 billion in investment. Now, that might sound large, but on a per capita basis, it's 35% less than in Scotland, where water remains in public ownership. And that's perhaps because Scottish water doesn't have to fork out billions in 
dividends. While investment has dried up over the past 30 years, shareholders in England's water companies have pocketed £72 billion. Aaron, are the droughts and our inability to deal with them just another sign that everything in this country is falling to pieces? Nothing works. Yes. And in terms of declining crop yields, we've been talking about this speculatively for decades. It's been a hot button topic for a decade. We've been talking about it on Navarra Media since Navarra Media existed. And it's just one of those things where you say it and you say it and you say it and you say it. And of course, it's not yet on you, so it doesn't sound that dramatic. But all of a sudden you think, wow, well, if we have every summer or every sort of several summers seeing something like this, and then it becomes every summer in our lifetime, then it becomes every summer, but worse than this, well, then clearly we have major, major problems with food security. And food security is one of those issues where neoliberalism basically said it wasn't political. You know, it's not like, it's not politically important to feed to feed people. So you get conservative politicians or Labour politicians, they'll say, well, the first priority of state and the government is to ensure the integrity of the state, national self-defense. And of course, we've expanded that somewhat with COVID-19 against biological threats. Food security obviously should be alongside that. And in terms of climate resilience and food supply chains, very little has been done. There was an amazing article also in the Financial Times last weekend, and it had just this extraordinary number about the number of people basically who, who work in our in food production in this country, agriculture, who are over 65. I think it's something like 50% of them. It's an FT story. It's about TikTok farmers in the FT last weekend. And a tiny number of them are, say, under 35. So in terms of the ecological conditions, we have major problems in terms of our food security. In terms of the labor supply available to actually producing food, we have a major problem. But because, like I say, neoliberalism says, oh, the market will sort it out. We don't need to worry about these things. They've had an attitude by default for several decades of saying, well, food, that's down to the supermarkets, not our problem. When you get food inflation, like we're going to get, like we're already getting, but it's going to get far worse as climate change um, accelerates and intensifies, then it, of course, is going to become this massive political issue and politicians are going to react. But like I say, it's just one of those things. We've seen it coming down the barrel for decades and nobody's done anything. And maybe politicians will act in 10 years' time when it's obviously far too late. But like you say, yeah, it's synonymous with a more general failure and inability of neoliberalism to actually solve problems. Even now, politicians don't talk in the register of solving problems. They talk about Theology, right? Liz Truss says, oh, how are you going to help with economic growth? Low taxes. Well, that's, that's not an answer. That's the status quo. We have low corporation taxes already. So if that was going to help economic growth, then we don't have to worry about low growth, which is precisely what's happening. So we have a bunch of politicians committed to these things, almost like religious holy scripture, rather than what they should be, which is orthodoxies, which help us solve problems. I'm not doing that. So there are big problems uh, in terms of food security, in terms of climate, in terms of housing, in terms of energy, public services. And it is terrifying. But most terrifying of all is the inability of politicians to sort of think, yeah, maybe we're going to have to uh, do things a bit differently from now on. The food prices point is super important. And I think that is probably how this almost directly feed into to politics, because we've seen the consequences now of food prices going up by 10% or so. If we're reading there that half the potato crop has failed... You know, it's not just you know, half of all of these different areas of crops, which are you know, very important for our food system. If half of them have failed, and also we're not going to have seeds being sown for next year because of the state of the soil. I mean, that's, that's going to be a really, really big deal. And I mean, this is going to be a running theme through tonight's show, but you're absolutely right, Aaron. That this is just another example of how neoliberalism is probably the worst possible system 
at planning for crises. Because the whole logic of it is about how do we cut corners? How do we get through normal times on as little investment and with as little outlays as possible? That, I think, it seems to be what the water companies have done. Not a single new reservoir since they were privatized in 1989. That was fine when we had completely normal weather. Then the moment you get a big drought, suddenly the crops have collapsed because we don't have enough money to go through the pipes. Enough water to go through the pipes. Sorry, money doesn't go through pipes. I think the same applies to the leaks, right? It, obviously, if, if this much water is leaking through the pipes, it's quite offensive at any time of, of year, but they presumably thought, well, we can let this much water leak in and there's enough water that we'll still have it coming out of the taps. That applied until you got to an extreme event, an external shock, and now the whole thing is ready to collapse because they didn't invest in it in the good times. To use a Tory phrase, they didn't fix the roof when the sun was shining. And now, well, when the sun shines too much in this case, we're completely screwed. On the topic of England's morally bankrupt water companies, it would be remiss not to mention their other big scandal this year. That's them discharging raw sewage into English rivers 375,000 times. And that figure is for 2021 alone. Indeed, the behavior of the water companies was deemed so bad that the Environment Agency, which is an official government body, said water bosses should face jail. A report they published this year concluded... Over the years, the public have seen water company executives and investors rewarded handsomely while the environment pays the price. The water companies are behaving like this for a simple reason, because they can. The water companies will only stop behaving like this if they are forced to. The amount a company can be fined for environmental crimes is unlimited, but fines currently handed down by the courts often amount to less than a chief executive's salary, which go into the millions, by the way. They go on. We need courts to impose much higher fines for serious and deliberate pollution incidents. The threat of significant impending financial penalties has an impact. Investors should no longer see England's water monopolies as a one-way bet. We would like to see prison sentences for chief executives and board members whose companies are responsible for the most serious incidents. Now, it needs to be emphasized, this is not a left-wing campaign group saying this. It's civil servants at the Environment Agency. These aren't usually thought of as, as being the kind of people who are telling CEOs that they should go to jail. The events here were so indisputably disgraceful that you've got this group of civil servants who normally write in a very reserved way saying, CEOs need to go to jail for this. Because there was all of these companies releasing sewage into rivers, making them you know, dangerous places. You can't swim in them. Well. We've got signs everywhere saying, do not dare to swim in this river, even though we've got a heat wave. Goes out into the sea as well. And for a long time, they were getting away with it. And their private companies, not only were they getting away with it, they were profiting from it, right? I would go further than the civil servants, by the way. How about we don't just jail the criminal bosses? We then renationalize the whole corrupt system. It's not working. It doesn't work in the good times. Even in the good times, when there's no reason to take exceptional measures, they're dumping sewage into rivers. Now, the moment that we have a drought, I mean, the water's running out. There is no reason that this system should remain in place. Next story. New data from the NHS has shown the depth of the crisis in our health service. The latest release of official data shows that in July, a record 29,000 people waited more than 12 hours to be seen in A&E. That's an all-time high and compares to the 432 people who waited over 12 hours in the same period before the pandemic. 
those weights will cause unnecessary deaths. And we can quantify by how much a British medical journal study conducted this year found that for those who waited more than 12 hours to be seen in A&E, the risk of death in the following month, so in the month following A&E attendance, was 16% higher than it was for those seen within four hours, four hours being the NHS target. Equally terrifying is the increase in the wait times for ambulances, the target for Category 2 incidents, which includes strokes and heart attacks, is for an ambulance to arrive within 18 minutes. But last month, the average wait time for Category 2 incidents was 59 minutes. In the same period before the pandemic, the average wait was 23 minutes. It goes without saying, if people have to wait an hour for an ambulance when they have a stroke or heart attack, that poses a serious threat to their life. And it also causes a great deal of trauma. This week, the BBC spoke to Darren Childs from Shropshire. Back in January, Darren waited 50 minutes for an ambulance when his daughter collapsed. Here he's speaking to Johnny Diamond. Our daughter, who was 12 months old, hadn't been very well. And at about 11 o'clock in the morning, she started fitting and had a seizure. That lasted for about 15 minutes, during which time she went blue and then went grey and stopped breathing. Obviously, as soon as the seizure had started, we called for an ambulance. And obviously, we assumed that when you call an ambulance, that one will be there within a few minutes. Unfortunately, it took over 47 minutes for that ambulance to reach us. So during that time, we had a 12-month-old baby who wasn't breathing. You told the, the call centre what had happened to your child. Yes, yeah, they were on the phone. They um, they stayed with us the whole time. They did explain that there wasn't any ambulances in the whole of Shropshire available at the time because they were all tied up at the hospital doing handovers. So our ambulance had to come from the next county over, which was Herefordshire, which took the 47 minutes. They advised us what to do. Obviously, once she started breathing again, we were told to roll her on her side and just keep her, keep her calm and keep her still because at that point, even though she'd started breathing again, the seizure was still continuing. And then when the seizure did eventually stop, she was unresponsive, so she was wasn't responding to our voice. Her eyes were rolled back in her head. And obviously, we didn't know at the time what kind of effect that it had had for a seizure that went on that long. And obviously, how we didn't really know how long she wasn't breathing for. So it was quite scary at the time. Well, that sounds unbelievably traumatic. And there, there is no excuse whatsoever for it happening in a rich, developed country. Of course, the Tories will blame it all on a pandemic they say is out of their control, but that's frankly bullshit. The reason the pandemic was able to put the NHS on its knees was because it came after a decade of chronic underfunding. This graphic shows NHS spending as a share of GDP. It steadily climbs during the new Labour years before 2010, and then it starts to fall. That's a problem because with an ageing population, the proportion of GDP we should spend on healthcare should be increasing. If it falls, you'll get really big problems, and that's what we're suffering from now. On top of the funding squeeze in the NHS, the neglect in terms of social care is even more stark. This chart from the FT shows the amount of funding available to social care and the number of people who need social care. Both have changed since 2010. The number of people over 70 with multiple long-term health conditions has increased by 60%. The total number of people over 70 has increased 30%. Meanwhile, the level of social care funding has actually 
fallen. That matters in and of itself. If people need social care and they aren't getting it, that will cause a lot of unnecessary suffering. But it also has a knock-on effect on the NHS. One in seven beds in the NHS in England are now occupied by people who don't need to be there. They can't be discharged because there's nowhere safe for them to go. Aaron, do you think the Tories will come to regret what they've done to our health service? No, they've made a great deal of money out of it, Michael. Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary, who is related to a former Tory health secretary, um, Virginia Bottomley, I believe he inherited her constituency in Surrey. She is involved in private healthcare provision. She, I believe, is in the Lords. Baroness Bottomley, I think she probably has a different name to that, less alliterative. They really are on the fiddle with this stuff. I mean that figuratively. There is no actual criminal corruption. What they're doing is creating a, a revolving door between private and public healthcare, as I think is so emblematic in the case of Virginia Bottomley and literally her relative, Jeremy Hunt, who was a Tory Secretary of State for Health later on under a different Conservative government. In terms of the statistic you showed about GDP and the percentage of GDP going on healthcare spending, Michael, even that image doesn't show us the facts. Because you have to remember, I think until 2008, we'd seen 64 consecutive quarters of economic growth. So the economy was booming. So you have, in real terms, even if you'd kept the percentage of GDP that was being spent on healthcare, even if you kept it the same, you still would have seen major increases in revenues going towards the NHS as with other public services. But that percentage was also going up. And conversely, what we've seen since 2010 is the percentage of GDP going on healthcare spending, that's been sort of edging down. We've also seen a very sluggish economy, actually, on a per head basis. So, of course, the population is growing. And if the population grows more quickly than GDP, then actually GDP per head is falling. We've had falling GDP for much of the last 15 years, not all the time, but much of the last 15 years, which is a statistic rarely mentioned by the media. I wonder why. That really shows what a, a difficult situation we're in. So you have a stagnant economy, which of course means diminishing tax receipts going into these things anyway, and you have a, a diminishing percentage of GDP going on healthcare services. It's, it's a nightmare. And finally, just to integrate something I wanted to say previously, you were talking about the Tories and planning. The Tories don't believe in planning. They don't think planning is good. They actually think planning is bad. Liz Truss, when she's talking about the failures of British housing. Why don't we build more houses? She's saying we plan too much. She's saying it's because of Stalinist targets and plans. Well, actually, no, it's the complete opposite of that. We're leaving far too much to the market. Now, imagine if you knew somebody, Michael, they were a friend of yours or a colleague, and they refused to plan. They had no plans for tomorrow. They had no plans for later today. They didn't plan to do the shopping. They didn't plan to clean their bedroom. Didn't have any plans at work. They were just the most scatterbrained person you could imagine. Now, this would clearly be a very unbearable person to live with. You certainly wouldn't want them in charge of anything important. Or imagine a business where nobody did any planning. We're not making plans about whether or not our staff will get a pay rise or whether we're going to exploit that opportunity or are we going to pay the rent next week on the building that we, uh, we lease? Well, we're not going to make any plans. That. Let's see what happens. That would be a very, very poor business. And yet that's the precise conception that conservatives have of the state. They think planning is bad. And I talked about theology earlier on. They don't have an economic orthodoxy anymore. They have a theology. And if you look at their view on the market, it is a substitute for the idea of divine providence. That's all it is. 
I don't need to do anything. I don't need to have any agency in the world. Human beings don't need to plan. Milton Friedman says this. You know, ultimately, the market is this thing that's so much more rational with the aggregation of all our choices. It's so much more rational and conscious, intentional planning. This is the idea of a providential God. That's all it is. It's kind of a reformulation of a very old Protestant idea. So fine, we can have these interesting uh, academic debates. But like I say, if you knew somebody that who, who, who compulsively didn't just fail to plan, thought planning was bad, you'd call them a walking disaster. And yet these the people with this conception of action and problem solving are in charge of the country. And actually they're in charge of a number of countries. And the ideas in their heads called neoliberalism apparently are really serious. And if you think they're not serious, then you're not, you know, a pragmatist or you're not living in the real world. Well, maybe we should stop living in that real world if the results are an NHS which is falling apart and ambulances which don't turn up for an hour. When it comes to that theology, there is no better example than, I suppose, any of the Tory debates we've seen since this leadership election launch, because both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, they stand up and say, oh yeah, we'll, we'll give the NHS a bit more money, whatever. But the real issue is we need reform. We're not getting enough for our money when it comes to the NHS. Rishi Sunak says, oh, we'll fix this by charging people £10 if they miss a GP appointment. Now, if you've reduced the proportionate amount of money going to the NHS, if you've had the biggest squeeze on funding in the NHS, I think on record, if you've cut funding to social care while the number of people who need social care has dramatically risen, and then you see disastrous results, then you have parents having to wait an hour for an ambulance for their child who's having a seizure who stopped breathing. You know, the cause and effect here is not difficult to work out. You squeeze the big institution of money and it stops working very well, right? You, you don't need to go to management school and work out what's going here. You don't say, oh, we need to make this more efficient. There's too many layers of middle management. These very, very overworked people clearly aren't overworked enough because that seems to be essentially what they're saying. We need to get more out of these people. These people are already working more hours than almost anyone else in the economy, right? But they just won't accept this. It's simple. You squeeze the money, you get worse outcomes. That's what we're seeing now. People will die because of it. And the Tories still live in cloud cuckoo land where what they talk about is efficiency reforms. After all of this, after all of this, after the pandemic, which showed how ridiculous the idea of efficiency savings are when it comes to something like the NHS, they're still using the same absolutely nonsense arguments. And I, yeah, I think this idea that this is just theology is, 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 is a really important one and it's really depressing because people are going to die because of it. Let's go to our next story. The Tory leadership contenders have appeared at yet another hustings, this time in Cheltenham. The energy crisis was a major topic and Liz Truss was asked what she planned to do about bills spiralling out of control. We need to make sure we're using our reserves in the North Sea and incentivising companies to do that. We need to make sure we're fracking in parts of the country where there is local support for that taking place. One thing I absolutely don't support is a windfall tax. I think it's a labour idea. It's all about bashing business, and it sends the wrong message to international investors and to the public. But then what do the public think about energy giants making three billion pounds in profits, while, by the way, they're already three billion pounds in debt to them? Well, first of all, I don't think profit is a dirty word. And the fact it's become a dirty word in our society is a massive problem. I mean, profit hasn't really become a dirty word. What people don't like is the fact that you've got these companies making billions and billions of pounds, which they haven't earned. It was luck. You know, there was a war in Ukraine, which for most people is a tragedy. For an oil company is, you know, th that's the jackpot. 
they're making billions while everyone else is is struggling with higher prices. This isn't, oh no, we don't value entrepreneurship. We don't value innovation anymore. This is, we don't like people who are already incredibly rich getting something for nothing while the rest of us are suffering. Moving on, trust is ruling out a windfall tax on massive energy profits. And separately, she's also said that she isn't in favor of handouts to those hit hardest by energy price increases. Instead, Truss is proposing tax cuts. She says she'll reverse the 1.25% increase in national insurance that Rishi Sunak brought in in April. But it turns out that despite her protestations to the contrary, this isn't going to be much use for people most struggling with their bills. The Tony Blair Institute has crunched the numbers. They write this. Liz Truss has suggested that further handouts aren't the answer. Instead, she has proposed reversing the national insurance increase designed to fund health and social care to help ease the crisis. That offsets a large chunk of the October price shock for well-off households, but it does very little for those who are most exposed to this price shock. With a national insurance cut, households in the bottom half of incomes will still be on average more than £50 a month worse off. Reversing the rise, therefore, won't do anything to help the people for whom bills at these levels will be well beyond anything they can afford to pay. For the poorest tenth of households, the tax cut would help them by just 76 pence per month on average, whereas the richest households in the UK will be better off by £93 a month. So what Truss is dressing up as a tax relief for ordinary Britons, in fact, looks like a bung to her wealthy Tory base. Those findings were put to Truss ally Therese Coffey by Nick Ferrari on LBC. Talk about a new prime minister. Perhaps I can share with you research or news put out by former prime minister. The Tony Blair Institute for Global Change has said Liz Truss's plans to reverse the increase in national insurance would save households on the lowest income 76 pence a month. The candidate you favour... She doesn't get her sums right, does she? Oh, she absolutely does. And this is, a thinking about an average of £170 for working households is uh, my understanding. Uh, however, the important thing, I think, in the approach that Liz uh, takes in her economic plan, we've heard this morning that the economy has contracted um, and we don't, understandably, uh, we want it to grow. Uh, sadly, the Bank of England forecast is for a deeper recession than perhaps uh, the government would like. And that's why Liz wants to set out a, more of an approach about how we get that growth and also put more money into the pockets of people straight away by reducing things like the pence. national insurance levy. But, but, uh, and indeed, uh, it's well, it's considerably more than that for the average working household, uh, well, as you will well know. No, here uh, we are. Nick. So the, the better indeed, households will be, off, will be better off, the richer households, I'm sorry, will be better off by some £93 a month. So this is a classic conservative policy, isn't it? You're looking after those who are well off, £93 a month, down at the bottom end of the scale, 76 pence a month, according to far calculations. Far from it, sir, Nick, because we've, what's Blair also Institute. happened under a conservative government is that we've increased the national insurance threshold. So there are fewer people paying uh, national insurance than there were before. So, you know, frankly, Tony Blair has got nothing to shout about in helping the poor during the financial crisis that happened under uh, Gordon Brown's watch, uh, not helped by uh, Tony Blair's legacy. But, uh, no extra support was given to people um, on very low incomes, far from it. And in fact, this government has stepped up and helped households. Just to pick up on Coffey's point about the Labour government, which we don't always defend, Coffey is right that Gordon Brown didn't introduce any new special measures to help the poorest during the 2008 financial crash. But that's in part because it was a very different kind of crisis. The 2008 recession didn't come with a massive inflation shock. Instead, the problem was a hit to growth and then a big uptick in unemployment. 
And on that front, Brown didn't do too bad a job. He introduced a stimulus budget, which saw the UK economy begin to recover. And between 2009 and 2010, the last year of the Labour government, the economy actually grew by 3.1%. But that good work was undone the following year, when the coalition came in. Growth shrunk to just 0.3%. It's been anemic ever since. Another reality Coffee ignores is the different states, Labour and Tory governments, left the British economy in before it faced these shocks. On the one hand, the global financial crisis came after 13 years of Labour investment in services and benefits, which meant that when unemployment did increase, its effects were tempered. According to Full Fact and the Institute for Fiscal Studies, In 13 years of Labour government, education spending as a share of GDP increased by 1.6 percentage points from 4.1 to 5.7%. This is an equal record increase along with a 13-year period to 1965, where education spending as a share of GDP also rose by 1.6 percentage points. Health spending as a share of GDP increased by 2.9 percentage points from 4.7 to 7.6%. This was a record increase since the Second World War. Finally, total spending as a share of the economy increased by 9.6 percentage points, also a peacetime record compared to any other 13-year period. Now, why does this matter? It matters because if you have decent free services and a decent welfare system, then economic shocks won't put millions of households at immediate risk of extreme poverty. But the Tories did the opposite. This is what happened from 2010. Welfare spending on families dropped by almost a half in eight years after austerity measures introduced caps on benefits. Education and welfare spending for single people was also cut. And that meant by 2018, 14.5 million people were already living in poverty. And that was before we were hit with COVID and inflation. Now, I think this all really matters. And it matters because it completely puts on its head the classic Tory charge that Labour didn't fix the roof while the sun was shining. The Tory line has been that Labour spent too much on public services and that that meant we weren't in a good position to deal with a crisis. The precise opposite is the truth. Because Labour had invested in public services and benefits, people were better able to handle a recession when it came. And the opposite is the case now, because everything has been cut to the bone over the past decade. But the precise opposite is true. Because Labour had invested in public services and benefits, people were better able to handle a recession when it came. And the opposite is the case now. Because everything has been cut to the bone over the past decade, when external shocks come along, in this case COVID and inflation, the whole system collapses. Aaron, I I want your take on this. And I suppose especially, you know, we heard for such a long time, the whole media accept this line that Labour didn't prepare for a crash because they spent too much money. And it is... I do think the precise opposite is the case. The reason, you know, obviously the financial crisis is bad for many people, but it could have been much worse and it would have been much worse if we went into that terrible economic moment with public services already on their knees and with people already in dire poverty. But because, you know, there are lots of problems with new labor, Iraq, the most significant of them. But when it came to investing in services and uh, and benefits, they might not always have done it in the way that we wanted, but they did do it. And that meant that we were much better prepared. They did, in a way, fix the roof when the sun was shining. I mean, what do you make of this? I half agree with you. I have to say, Michael, as much as we've disagreed with Blair and Brown on this show, and I'm particularly talking about Brown here because, of course, he was the Prime Minister in 2008. It's quite funny when Therese Coffey blames Blair for the global financial crisis. She was saying, well, it's on Blair's watch, and actually it was on Gordon Brown's watch, and this woman's an idiot. She should be be nowhere near power. It is really important to say that had this been David Cameron and George Osborne, can you imagine how much worse it would have been? 
Can you imagine like the level of multilateral coordination between the Federal Reserve, the US government, the British government, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the, Jap- you know, the Bank of Japan? Gordon Brown was at the center of that, as was one of his advisors, Baroness Videra. You know, I, we don't need to go over the top and say Gordon Brown was the mastermind who saved the global economy, but he made a real contribution. Now, can you imagine George Osborne doing that or Sajid Javid? Really? Or Rishi Sunak? Of course you can't. And I'm people watching this know I'm not some sort of fluffer for New Labour. I'm critical of them where they need to be criticised. But in 2008, wow, we really were lucky to have that man at the helm. Really. And in terms of the uh, fixing the roof thing, there's two problems here under the Conservatives. The first is that they don't generate growth after 2010. There's not the growth for the tax receipts to fund the public services like there is before. As I said, between 1995 and 2007, I think we get something like 64 consecutive quarters of growth. Never happened before. That's why you get that famous line from Gordon Brown. We've ended boom and bust. Obviously, came part in 2007-8 with the global financial crisis. What we've not recovered since then is a growth model. So before that crisis, we do have a growth model. It's not very sustainable, it turns out. Financialization, the city of London, obviously rising um, real estate prices. You think house prices are going up right now? I think between 97 and 2007, they were going up by an average of 12% a year, every year. You know, you had an explosion in house prices under Blair Brown. You have obviously uh, PFI, you have cheap consumer durables coming over from China. You still, still have very cheap energy. You know, you're looking at petroleum at like $20, 30 $40 a barrel for most of the late 90s, 2000s, before the global financial crisis. So you have this beautiful Goldilocks era, which creates growth for new labor to then use the dividend of to fund public services. The question is, would new labor have had a growth model after 2010, had, say, Gordon Brown won that general election? I think we probably would have had a better growth model than the Tories because they don't have one whatsoever, but I don't think they would have been there. So we get this line from Labour, well, if we'd had the trend growth before 2007, since 2010, then we'd be this much richer. Well, that's not happened anywhere on earth. Well, that's not true. Actually, no, it's not happened anywhere on earth. Even in China, there's not been the trend growth since 2010 as there was before the global financial crisis. You know, now China averages 7 or 8% growth a year before it was like 10, 11% growth. Ditto pretty much everywhere else. So it's a stupid thing for Labour to say because that growth model, really the only person who thought about it in British politics was Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. Of course, nobody's allowed to say that probably in legacy media for the next five years, but that is the facts. Secondly, a big part of those tax receipts, as an extension of what I've just said, was coming out, of course, of the City of London financial services industry, this massive thing which was generating big corporate tax receipts to fund all this stuff. Now, of course, Financial services has contracted since 2007 to an extraordinary extent at first, but it's never come back. And again, that's another thing which we've not really solved. Okay, well, where are we going to generate tax revenues to pay for this stuff? Clearly, the answer is on the digital giants. Clearly, the answer is on the ultra-rich. Clearly, the answer is on capital gains, which are accumulating, whether that's stocks, whether it's house price values. You know, Clearly, that's where we generate those funds. But of course, that's a little bit controversial. You know, so we just pretend that we can, you know, we can generate the kind of taxes we did before with what was the magic money tree of the corporate tax receipts coming out of the city of London. But that's not really, that's not really possible. So I half agree with you, Michael, but I agree with you entirely that we were very lucky to have Gordon Brown at the helm in 2008. Thank God it wasn't Rishi Sunak or George Osborne, both entirely useless.
Well, I mean, ideally, it would have been someone who used the moment to actually get corporations in check, right? I mean, instead of temporarily nationalizing the banks, he could have actually properly done it and then made sure that the, the speculative economy that he'd allowed to sort of get out of control over the previous 10 years was, you know, put a lid on it. Well, I suppose the point I'm making is, that, you know, they're, they're always saying the reason we weren't prepared for the financial crisis was because we borrowed too much money. It's the precise opposite. I mean, we weren't prepared for the financial crisis in the sense that we hadn't regulated private finance and we had an economy that was too much too based on rising house prices. But the only way in which you can say we had prepared for it is that our public services were in a fairly healthy state and people weren't already living on the breadline. And it's in, in sort of the topsy-turvy, through-the-looking-glass world of the British media, the precise opposite suddenly becomes the accepted wisdom, which even Labour are too terrified to, to counter. British people face energy bills of over £5,000. At the same time, energy companies are paying out billions of pounds in dividends. This week, friend of the show, Owen Jones, explained on Channel 5 why this simply cannot go on. Owen, a bigger windfall tax. We know there's a 25% windfall tax already scheduled. That is going to raise uh, roughly £5 billion. It doesn't apply to all the massive profits they've made before. It's only applies from the last few weeks. So all the vast profits, like BP making £6.9 billion. Do you know how much the shareholders of these energy companies have got in dividends since 2010? £200 billion. £200 billion, which could have been used to lower people's bills. £200 billion, by the way, which could have been used to invest in clean energy to make us energy independent so we wouldn't be exposed to these massive global headwinds. The idea the government are on, a, on another planet, not another planet, another universe, if they think these energy companies are going to invest these massive profits into, for example, energy independence, 60% of their new profits are going to dividends for their shareholders. It's a complete, not a cop. I have to say, it's a challenge to people watching this. Have you lost your minds? Look, no, 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 listen, listen to this. Listen, listen. This is such an important point. £4,400 energy bills. That isn't extortionate. That isn't simply a rip-off. That is a humanitarian catastrophe. People can't afford to pay that. It's literally impossible. Millions of people will not be able to afford to live in one of the richest countries on the face of the earth. Now, the fact that people are angry about this, fine. They're angry about it. They're yelling at their TVs. They're, 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 they're lying awake at night worrying about it. What on earth does it take in this country for people to take to the streets and actually do something? We can't just sit here while millions of people are driven literally so far below the poverty line that they can no longer afford to even exist. It's ludicrous. What we need to do obviously, is not just keep doing windfall taxes, by the way, because all that's doing is dealing with the symptoms of privatising an industry, which is a natural monopoly, which is obviously one of our most basic needs. So we should bring them under public ownership. Take France at the moment. France have got a nationalised energy system, right? Their energy prices, their bills yeah. aren't going up by 400,000, 400 quid. They're going up by only 4%, 4%. Yeah. because the but, government are forcing okay. them because they can to keep people's energy okay. bills down. Uh, uh, but let them run for the people of this country instead of shareholders. You just want to rip us all off. Okay. Aaron, I want your response to Owen Jones' intervention there. It's pretty well put, I thought. It was beautifully put, Michael. And he's right. I mean, I, I, I'm a bit more optimistic. He's saying, what will it take for people to go to the street? I mean, people know if they go to the streets, that's not going to stop anything. What's that going to stop? So 
I'm a bit more sympathetic to people sort of not necessarily saying, well, we have to do something right now. I think the don't pay campaign, I think is going to, is going to capture a really important part of the zeitgeist. You're looking at about from a poll that came out from Savannah, around 25% of the public is saying that they aren't going to be able to pay their bills or won't pay the, those bills, 25%. And I think that would be more worrying for the government and for the energy companies than people protesting. If 25% of people said we're not going to pay our bills, that is, that is existential for their bottom line and for their business model. And in terms of the more broad problems, and it goes back to something you were saying about Liz Trust, Michael, when you were saying that, you know, most people don't have a problem with profits. There were loads of profits being made between 97 and 2007 in this very strange economic model we had, which can never be repeated, by the way, which had a bunch of downsides, and we could have done things so much better. But you did have this period of relatively high profits, relatively decent-ish, better than now, wage growth. Certainly access to credit was good, so people could buy houses and so on. You did have this moment where people's living standards were getting better and profits were high. What we have now is very high profits and people getting poorer at a catastrophically quick pace. Okay, so let me give you an example. BT have recorded post-tax, post-tax profits of 1.2 billion. I think they paid out 700 million in dividends. Their CEO is on three and a half million pounds when you, when you have the entire salary package. Mr. Janssen, Philip Janssen, I believe his name is. So he's had a massive inflation-busting pay rise. The shareholders get their 700 million, massive profits. And yet you've got BT call center workers, Michael, in the Northeast, who are on 20,000 pounds a year, who have to use a food bank. They've got the food bank at work. I think it's called like a workplace pantry or something. You know, it's like something you get at Waitrose. So people look at that and they say, well, the shareholders are getting 700 million. The senior staff, like the CEO, the CFO, the chief financial officer, they're getting millions of pounds. The company's doing really well. The people who literally are the bread and butter of the company that pick up the phones, that go around fixing people's internet, there is no business without those people. Those people are using food banks. That does incense people. And if your response to those, well, we, we shouldn't be ashamed of people making profits. You should absolutely be ashamed of a business which makes profits, pays millions to its CEO, and yet has its staff on the, on the factory floor having to use food banks. Yes, you should be absolutely ashamed of that. And so I think you've got people like Owen Jones explaining this with utter clarity in the media, as we do it too here at Navarra Media. But my God, it's common sense, Michael. And the situation is so bad. And yet, pretty much the entire political class, and I have to say much of the media, look outlandish. Not all of the media. You know, you get Martin Lewis going on the BBC or ITV quite regularly now, talking common sense. But a lot of the pundits and so on, like Owen says, people are physically not going to be able to pay these bills. So what are we going to do about it as a society? Lock them all up? Do they get their credit rating destroyed? Do they, uh, you know, fall behind on their bills? They stop eating? They stop feeding their kids? What, what's the proposal here? I mean, we clearly are going to have to have some cap on prices, which is not the energy cap, which we're getting from the government because it's not a cap. It's a, you know, multiples increase on our energy prices over the course of one year. We're clearly going to have to do something quite significant. What's it going to look like? And that is a question that's really not coming from much the media or the, 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 the sort of the Westminster class. Owen is a strange person when you see him saying this on the television. There's very few people that are saying it. Grace, Martin Lewis, Ash Sarkar, Owen Jones. I mean, it's common sense that they are right. So why isn't everybody talking like this on, on the TV and in the newspapers? Now, Aaron, I want to put a challenge to you. There's been a lot of debate online about whether nationalizing energy companies would make much of a difference to energy prices. 
Now, Aaron, the argument made by people who, who oppose nationalisation, who say it's, it's not going to be the answer to the cost of living crisis, is they say, look, the profits is only a slim section of this increase in prices, 1.9% of their total revenue of the cost of these bills. In that context, what is the point in nationalising the energy companies? How would you respond to them? We clearly need to move away from the price signal in terms of how this is going to be determined. Clearly, I mean, there's, there's a decent argument which says we want people to move away from energy inefficiency. We want people to adopt uh, green technologies. So some change in the price signal, particularly for more affluent consumers who can afford to do that, that might not be a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad argument. But I think even, even for those people who are very well off, when you include what's going to happen with interest rate changes, you know, the Bank of England saying that we're going to see interest rates peak at 3%, bullshit. They're saying 12 months from now, inflation is still going to be 9.5%. Interest rates are 1.7% now, 1.75%. Interest rates aren't going to be 3%. They're going to be 5%, 7%. I mean, maybe not. They might change their rules, but right now they increase interest rates as long as inflation is significantly above 2%. And they're saying it's going to be 9.5% next year. So between energy costs, between interest rates, between a recession, which we're told is going to last for five quarters, a lot of people are going to be hit. So I don't buy this argument of let's let's just help you know the bottom twenty percent because actually, I think three quarters of society has a big problem here. On the James O'Brien show on uh, LBC, I don't talk about that gentleman positively very often, but a caller called him, had a fish and chip shop. He said, "Look, my energy bills are going to go from something like eight to seventy thousand pounds." I think when you hear stories like that, you have to understand, Michael, energy is the bedrock of a modern economy. It is the bedrock, which of course have been fossil fuels for a long time. We need to decarbonize. But regardless, a modern industrial economy relies on energy. And I think when you have costs that prohibitively high, you're going to see vast numbers of businesses going bankrupt. Forget the humanitarian crisis of people not being able to heat their own homes. Vast numbers of businesses going bankrupt. You're going to look at things like automotive manufacture, for instance, where the overhead from energy is so high. If you're Nissan, you probably think, well, look, let's just decrease production for six months. Let's see what's going to happen in the UK. You might ramp up production in France because energy is cheaper, or you might be in a country where energy is really, really cheap. I don't know where their, their production plants are. If you have a production plant in Brazil, you know it's got big oil uh, production over there. They might have cheaper energy prices. That's going to be a factor too. So I think not just the consumption side on the humanitarian side, also on the production side. Obviously, if all these businesses disappear, all those people become unemployed, that's a huge hits not just the economy, but again, to tax receipts. And that makes the recession even deeper because businesses lay people off. Those people don't pay taxes, they need unemployment benefit, they need housing benefit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you skewer all of that, Michael, by making a really decisive intervention in fixing prices for energy. And from what I understand, and I'm, I'm yet to see a better argument for it, or against it rather, from what I understand, the most elegant solution to that is nationalization. Now, you have Gordon Brown saying just a few days ago, I think, in the, in the Guardian, or maybe it was elsewhere, but reports in the Guardian, that we're going to have temporary nationalization. I disagree with that. Why should it be temporary? Why should we, why should we only socialize these industries when there are problems? If they're profitable, let's socialize them all the time. If they're integral to a modern economy, which clearly they are, as I've just explained, then they should be held in public ownership for the public good. The question is, I think nationalization or part nationalization or big like stakes of equity in energy companies and wholesale and a bunch of different layers of the sort of supply chain. I think that's coming. Um, I do think that's coming actually in a lot of Western countries. Should it be temporary or should it be permanent? I think on the left, we should be saying it should be permanent. And also, look, that's going to help us accelerate decarbonization, right? 
because we need to be planning how much energy we generate and from what sources in a far more considered way than we presently do. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really get the whole temporarily nationalized them because the, the, the whole problem, the reason we have this shit energy system is because the private companies didn't have the incentive to invest enough in the system because they were too interested in short-term profits. Now, you might say, look, the profits is just a small sliver of the overall cost, especially you know now, now gas prices are driving the high cost. But if we just nationalize them for this temporary period and have price controls, then privatize them again, you have exactly the same problem, which is they don't bother to invest in, in capacity. They don't bother to invest in a green industrial revolution. And then the next time there's a, a gas crisis or an oil crisis, we're, we're in this same shoddy situation. So, I mean, nationalize them, nationalize them for good, invest in clean energy, and then we won't be so vulnerable to these kind of shocks. You don't have to look far to see that. You don't have to read Marx to work out how this might look. You don't have to look deep into the history of socialism. You just have to look at France. They, they've nationalized their energy. Or it's been nationalized for a long time. And their bills are going up 4%. Why? Because they invested in nuclear, which means they're not so reliant on gas from Russia. And also, they can cap prices, the government absorbs the cost. And there's not the kind of moral hazard when you sort of, when the government bungs all of this money to cover the, the losses of, of energy companies, because the same person is responsible for investment and bailing them out, which is, in that case, the French government. It's not this situation we have here, where you've got private firms, they think we won't invest in the good times, and then in the bad times, we'll wait for a bailout from the government. That's, that's the, the very vicious cycle we're in at the moment. And even Gordon Brown's plan, which is much better than Keir Starmer's plan, much better than any of the Tory leadership candidates' plans, even that doesn't end that cycle. So nationalise the goddamn things, end a scam! Final story of the evening. The Trade Unions Congress have released a video showing that when it comes to the Tories, it's always one rule for them and another for the rest of us. This is how Conservative Party members will be choosing who our next Prime Minister will be. They go to the Conservative Party website and choose their candidate. And this is what union members have to do to vote to strike. Wait to receive their ballot paper in the post, fill it in, and take it to a post box. So why don't unions have online voting? Because the government has banned it. So apparently online voting is okay for 180,000 Conservative Party members to choose our next Prime Minister, but not okay for millions of trade union members fighting for better paying conditions. So our question to the government is, if online voting is good enough for you, why can't unions use it too? That was a good point well made. The Tories are in favour of online voting when it comes to their leadership elections. It's an option they offer because it's easier, cheaper, and lets more people participate. But when it comes to trade unions organising strike action, only an old-fashioned letter in the post will do. It's obvious hypocrisy. So how did we end up in this situation? Well, to get to grips with this ridiculous situation. We can go back to 2016 when David Cameron's government passed a new trade union act. Its aim was to make it much harder for workers to strike, especially those in the public sector. And it did so by increasing the threshold needed for any strike ballot to be valid. For private sector unions, 50% of members would need to take part in any ballot for a strike to be legal. And it was even tougher for public sector unions. For them, not only did they need a 50% turnout, but on top of that, 40% of all members entitled to vote had to be in favour of the strike. Really high threshold to set there. In response, the unions asked for the right to ballot their members online. And despite an independent review suggesting a trial take place, the Tory government said no. Aaron, it is pretty crazy, isn't it? I don't think many people know about this either. The, the, the Tories are constantly calling the trade unions dinosaurs. Then the trade unions say, can we just let our members vote on the internet, you know, given this is 
the 21st century. And the Tories say, no, you've got to use the post. Tories being hypocrites, Michael? <laughs> really? Really? The Tories having a completely morally vacuous double standard, which only suits them and completely rigs the rules against working class people? Whatever next? <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, it's very well explained by, um, by Shelley. You know, we see these throughout public life in this country, just the, the, like you say, the insanely obvious, the conspicuous double standard. And yet quite a few people, conservatives, don't seem to have a problem with it. It is really, really strange. And, you know, it, we have to understand that not everything about human psychology, well, actually, quite the majority of things about human psychology aren't very rational. And that people who identify as conservatives or with conservatives will think that this double standard is entirely legitimate. You can't persuade those people. Fortunately, it's not many people. Even if you look at the last general election, you're talking about, what, 55% of the country, 60% of the country, 65% of the country turns out to vote. They get, what, 40% plus. And of course, a lot of those people don't think like that anymore. So, you know, it's, it's not everybody, but it's, there's a decent minority of, of people in this country who would say, yeah, Tories can vote online for the next prime minister, but actually it's entirely justified to bring, you have to have ID to vote at the next general election. You know, and you have to go to the polling office with your identification, with a passport. Obviously, it's really, really, really daft. That's why people need to support Navarro Media, Michael. They need to support New Left Media to bring a little bit of reason and sanity to a very confused political conversation in this country. But it's also great that the TUC are producing this content with Shelley. Shelley's fantastic. She's come on the show before a number of times. And, you know, communicating that in a really compelling way. Because, yes, we need a better media, but also trade unions and organizations which are acting in the best interest of working people need to be able to tell their story better too. And actually, that's one of the really impressive things I have to say, Michael, in 2022 so far, whether that's the GMB, whether that's um, the RMT, the TUC, particularly the GMB and TUC, on TikTok and on Twitter, on Instagram, they've been really hitting things out of the park with their social media. And particularly, of course, now with this Enough is Enough campaign, you know, you've had 300,000 signups in less than a week. And they've got a really big social halo around what they do. 300,000 people is, you know, twice as many people as are members of the Conservative Party, which really does illustrate the extent to which this is a minority pursuit. You know, the people who are applauding Liz Truss when she says these bonkers things about, we shouldn't call profit a dirty word, while people who work at a business like BT with 1.2 billion pound post-tax profits have to use food banks, the people clapping that, there's not that many of them. You know, the, the number of people who sort of let them get away with the double standard, yeah, that's a lot bigger. But the sort of ideological zealots, there's not that many of them. You know, one is Lance, is it Lance Foreman? Former Brexit Party guy on Twitter. He just, the guy has, hasn't got a clue what he's talking about when it comes to economics or anything resembling even what seems to me like basic accounting. But he was a Brexit Party MEP. You know, hopefully in 10, 15 years time, we can look at this period of British politics, particularly since austerity in 2010. Let's not let Cameron off the hook. He's been, I think, the worst prime minister of my lifetime. I think he, it's him and Thatcher. He's certainly worse than Boris Johnson, Cameron, because he inflicted so much utterly avoidable damage. Hopefully, we'll look at this episode, 2010, to God knows when it's going to finish. Obviously, with sadness, but maybe a slight smile that it's over. I look at Shelley, and I look at the TUC's content online, and I, I even watch Tisky Sow and Michael Walker's hosting, and I'm not on the show, and I'm an avid viewer. And I have a little bit of optimism and hope for the future. You've ended the show with some hope. That's very good. I'm glad you did because it has been a fairly depressing evening. We've been just showing you countless years of failure from a government which is still in power. We'll end with some more good news as well. And that's that despite the onerous requirements for going on strike, which we've just explained to you, 
trade unions are smashing those strike thresholds. The most recent RMT strike ballot had a turnout of 71% and 89% voted in favour. Also this year, 74.8% of BT workers turned out for the CWU strike ballot with 95.8% voting for it. And in the ballot on upcoming Royal Mail action, the turnout was 77% with 97.6% voting to strike. So the Tories thought, oh, if we set these thresholds so high, it can't possibly be the case that workers will be engaged enough that more than 50% of them vote in these ballots. It turns out that turnout is huge and the demand for strike action because people aren't going to accept pay cuts is overwhelming. Of course, on Navarra Media, we will be continuing to cover those strike actions, which are, I mean, setting British politics alight this summer. Aaron, it's been a pleasure being joined by you this evening. Michael, it's been my pleasure. After posting on Wednesday, I have an immeasurable amount of respect for what you do. Very tough job in the hot seat. To all our viewers, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for watching. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.